Uh, they're unique in a lot of ways. So I figured I wanted to start, um, if you were here a few weeks ago, I talked about the literary elements. You didn't, there was, you didn't know there was going to be a test. <laughs> now, I think it's, it's real important to, the, the reason I even talk about that the reason, in, in a Sunday school class is understanding, if you can understand the elements of a story, it makes it a little easier to understand. You know, what's it really mean? What's it about? Why are you telling me this? Um, one of the things that we'll find, there are really th three levels of narrative in the Bible. And so uh, there's just that overarching, you know, where the main characters are God and Jesus and Satan as the enemy. And then there's this second layer that's all about God and his covenant with his people. And then there's the third layer of narrative where we all where we all kind of live, where all these individual, just individuals with specific stories. And I think we'll find especially that uh, Ruth has all three, I think. Uh, Esther may live a little more down here. Uh, we'll see for a number of reasons. Some other things I always try to think about when I'm looking at books in the Bible, you know, who wrote this, when, why? Yeah, why is this particular story, as interesting as it is, why is it considered part of the scripture? Yeah. Who was the original audience? You know, what was that context? And then what application does it have for us? And I think all of those are, are real important parts of the story. So, oops, if I oops, hit the wrong button. It's the wrong device. All right. That's the wrong device. <laughs> would, you, would you put that over there somewhere? All right. <laughs> and now I have it upside down. Okay. So remember, we're paying attention to plot. That's the what happened. You'll see how the story builds until a turning point, and then it moves toward resolution. Characters, you can't have a story without characters. You can almost have a story without plot before you can have a story without characters. Who's, who are the good guys? Who's it about? You know, who, with whom are they in conflict? Why are those other people in the story? And then the when and where. When, when it took place, where it took place, and then that other element of when was this actually written down? So those are some things that we'll think about because when you read a story, you know, two important questions before you tell a story is who cares and so what? And I think there are some real important who cares and, and so what's in these stories. Um, in these, it's real easy to look for conflict. You know enough about both books, I would guess, to know there's a lot of conflict in Esther. Uh, who's, the, who's the antagonist? Haman, yeah. There is no question that he is the antagonist in the story. He's the bad guy. Uh, it's, it's a man versus a man story. More the conflict in Ruth, you've got that man versus nature. The reason that Naomi's family leaves Bethlehem to go to Moab is because of famine, and so that's really a catalyst in the story, and it's the, the, that resolution comes pretty early, saying we go back to Bethlehem, and there's this other underlying part of the story. There are lots of turning points. Is Hachuerus going to raise that scepter to Esther or not? Uh, what's going to happen when Boaz finds a woman in his feet when he wakes up in the threshing floor? There's a lot of suspense. What could go wrong in these stories? Especially what could have gone wrong if some of the characters lack the integrity that they have. And another thing, to keep with whether it's this book or any other, when you're looking at a story, remember that the narrator selects details. Even when you're telling a true story, something that happens to you, 
you select the details that are important for your hearer. I always think, probably mentioned before, my son Ben tends, when he's telling a story, especially he goes to a movie and he tells me the whole movie. And I would say, just tell me the important parts. And so you might tell, think about how you might tell something that happened to you differently to different people. And so in these stories, why these particular details? What, about, what are the things that the writers of these books didn't tell us? You know, there are always some things, I think, in heaven I can't wait to ask God. So uh, plot's going to be real important. We have our protagonists, antagonists. We have some characters that you know, are really fleshed out and others that we just know enough about them to fill in. We have some characters that stay the same and some that change. And there are some characters that are there for contrast. Um, I think Orpa, for instance. We see characters that are types. We have names that are important. Name changes are always important. So what does Naomi change her name to? Bitter. Bitter, yeah. Somebody picks a name. Can you imagine? I'm going to name my baby Bitter. Uh, but when you name yourself. And then settings going to be real important. Especially notice when there are dual settings, when somebody goes from one place to another or back. So you've got Moab and Bethlehem and the story of Ruth, for instance. And you'll notice that while neither of the stories starts with once upon a time, they pretty much start in the time of the judges or in the, time, in the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus. Setting it in historical context was important for the original hearers of the story. I'm telling you your history, the writer is saying. This is something that happened to our people at a particular time and at a particular place. So that context, I think, is real important in this story. Um, and ask some questions, then we'll look at these at the end. So these are, if there were going to be a test, uh, and it wasn't multiple choice, it was going to be uh, an essay test, these would be some questions. Where is God in these stories? You probably know, what's one of the unusual things that we know about the book of Esther? God is not mentioned by name. Um, how is one's identity affected by where one is? Are you the same person? I, I can remember in elementary school realizing I felt like I was a different person at school than the person I was at home. Well, that can be for good or bad. Uh, does time have an impact on our identity? Who is included in God's family? What kind of people does God use to bring about his will? I think that's really important in both stories. And why was this particular book or these two particular books included in Scripture? So those, uh, hold those thoughts. Let's start with Esther. The Book of Esther. It's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Esther and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the Book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in the story are two Jews, Mordecai, and then his niece, Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in the story. And then there's the Persian official, Haman. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd, I mean, this is the Bible about God, but this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity. There are signs of it everywhere. 
the story is full of very odd co coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work from behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. It's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes a silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant, and he wants to find his queen. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of the pageant. After this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. So he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, that's not mentioned anywhere. But this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? Yeah, read it. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called Pur in Hebrew. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their beautiful decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching to the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai is confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery. She purposes to go to the king with her amazing word. If I perish, I perish. Now when what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at first banquet. And she says that she wants to make a special request to both of them at an exclusive banquet of all the dead. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that the tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai, but all of a sudden, the story flips. It just so happens that night, the king can't sleep, and he has the royal chronicles read Good bedtime. And he just <laughs> happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved Haman's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king, in that moment, orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. 
So now Haman has to leave Mordecai around the city on the royal horse, telling everyone to pray. Now this moment in the story is a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai flies out. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive. And Esther informs the king that first of all she's Jewish. And second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who would save his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now, the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken drink. And he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made Mordecai. It's ironic in a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree on the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed with their the guard. Now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any body Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold endless feast to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside him. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined the Haman's plot. And then on a second they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast on the to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. The name of the feast comes from Haman's diet. So remember, poor The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated as second in command of the kingdom. We are told now with his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in Now, step back. Notice how this whole story is written design. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edict banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict banquet. And then in the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story. Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the character. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are part. Not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like burying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story's not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral commandments, as if it endorses all of their behavior. But they are put forward as models of trust in the things given And so the book of Esther comes back to that question of which we why God is not here. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? The book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purpose. 
So the Book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it all, and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming His world. And that's what the Book of Esther is all about. It'll probably take me about a month to come up with all that. Don't you love the way they show the just the balances and the parallels and and the structure of the story? Uh, the book was probably written, it's believed by, probably written by a Jew who was in Persia. The earliest date is around 460 BC, but most likely before Persia fell to Greece, just because of some language. There are some things, there are shades of, a little shades of Daniel, except that in this case, did you notice Mordecai or Esther never said, we'll never marry, you know, we'll marry Mary, we'll never do this. They didn't stand up for, you know, any of their, you know, I guess, Jewish law in ways that Daniel did. So we see a lot of, uh, some differences there, but I think we at least see a group of people in similar circumstances with different challenges trying to live in a place and have an identity that often put, maybe puts them at odds with others. There are probably t two of my f two favorite verses, one that was referred to here, if there's any that most of us take away, and it's the one that, you know, the sticker stickers on our laptops or cross stitches, the, the one where Mordecai tells Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. If there's a theme for, that we can apply to all of us, it's that, God's will is going to be accomplished and we can choose to participate or we can uh, miss out on the blessing, but God's will is going to be done. Uh, and probably my other, and he didn't mention this one, in eight, at chapter 8, verse 17, after all the, you know, the fighting and the uh, repercussions to Haman and his uh, people, we're told many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fears of the Jews had seized them. And at times where we expected Mordecai to say God's will or we expected to say because of the fear of the Lord, uh, I think there are, if the implication is there, the wording is different, but the idea that people, you know, people who were from other nations saw this, you know, this minority group and said, we want to be, you know, we want what they have, and I think that's particularly important in the story. Uh, as the video reminds us, God uses people who aren't necessarily role models. Yeah. Think about all of our favorite characters. David was, you know, might have been a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't a role model. Uh, if you're looking for a role model in the Bible, what's the best place to look? Jesus, you know, we've got the ultimate role model. God uses all kinds of people, even those who are not, you know, flawless in their morality, to accomplish his, uh, his deeds. I think we also notice Ahasuerus had a problem probably similar to David's. Remember when David, it was spring, and when kings used to go to war, and he stayed home, and that's when the whole Bathsheba thing happens. When a king has too much time on his hands, uh, you have a lot of trouble. So you imagine this long party, all the drunkenness, and that's when he was particularly susceptible to appeals to his ego. And I think that was... Uh, 
we'll get to them in a minute. That was something I think was an important uh, element in this in the story. Same thing happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Why don't you know? Why don't his friends say, "Why don't you make this edict? I've got a really good idea. This will make you look good." Anytime you're signing something you can't back up on, you need to think twice. And so, he got himself into a lot of uh, problems there as well. Uh, another real thing that's interesting to me: Esther is the one book of the Bible that was forbidden or banned in Nazi Germany. Does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, I read that in. Buchenwald, that the prisoners there in the concentration camps had enough, had the book memorized, and on scraps of paper they actually compiled the entire book of Esther, and it, you know at night would perform it. And they were even during that time they often referred to Hitler as Haman. And if you study a little bit about what's done the, in during Purim, the children. Would, when the story is told, the children make noisemakers to drown out the name of Haman. I think we could learn a lot about uh, how to handle evil people by not mentioning their name, blotting out their name. Uh, might be a good lesson for us to learn. And then I think some of the... Uh, when we find out that Haman is an Agagite, who was Agag? Do you remember that story? And when the Israelites were told, get rid of everybody, kill them all, destroy them, their first enemies with the Amalekites, and the king was allowed to live. Think what might, you know, Haman might never have been born if the people of Israel had been obedient earlier. And I think that's, uh, that's one of those interesting bits of the story. Uh, technically, you wouldn't call this story a comedy, but if you study... Uh, classical comedy, you have characters who, you know, that reversal of fortune, the bad guy gets what's coming to him, and then the good guy's elevated. So we definitely see Mordecai elevated, and you see Haman, uh, I mean, you can't help but laugh when he's having to, you know, what would you do for a hero? Oh, I'd, all these things he thinks he's getting for himself, and he ends up obtaining for his worst enemy. Uh, I think that's... It's kind of laughable, or that that gallows, or the you know, the spike, the gallows he raises, thinking he's going to be able to use it, and that's where he ends up dying. That's what uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, a couple of my favorite minor characters in Hamlet, are the ones. Uh, Hamlet uses the or Shakespeare's expression, they were hoisted on their own petard. You know, they blow themselves up with their own plans, and I think that's. There's something satisfying about that when you've got a truly evil character. Um, any, anything else? Again, it, these are familiar stories, but I think when we go back to them, there are always things that we find. We're going to pull some of it together. Let's go ahead and uh, learn about Ruth, our other story. And I don't know why I decided to do an anti-chronological order. It invites us to reflect on the of how God is involved in day-to-day -day joys and hardships in our lives. There are three main characters in the book. Naomi, the widow, Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz, the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all works. Chapter one opens with this line, in the days when the judges And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days which the book 
And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive in the land. So in search of food, they moved on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient land. And there the father of the family dies. And the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these two daughters And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay. So she tells her new daughter's law that she's back And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. So she compels the women to stay at home. Orpah agrees, but Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. She said, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel and the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter Hebrew, and she laments her tragedy. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barking process. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character. He noticed it. So after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes special provisions so that the immigrants would gather grain. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrants. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to him, he prays for her that God will reward her. So Ruth comes home that and Naomi finds out that she had Boaz and she is. She says Boaz is their family. Now, this family tree, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he had a wife and children and It was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that. So Naomi, she begins to hope perhaps there might still be a future for them. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes and grieving for them. And she's going to show signs that she's available. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz at the farm. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up. He's told to start. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry them. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. He calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of father's birth. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day. And he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before he can And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all these reasons. It turns out, in the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, so he's actually eligible for him to redeem his family. But at the last second, his family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth to Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal the story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. 
So the death of the husband and the son is reversed. As Ruth is married again, gives birth to a new son, granting joy to the man. And this symmetry between the opening and the close is even more remarkable. So, so remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapter as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at those This story is beautifully designed. And that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story. And that's how little God is in Right. The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God in anything directly in the story. And that is important. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her, but actually the whole story is about God's mission to restore her in her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to the family flock. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer, who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity, combined with Ruth's boldness, to save Naomi. So this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decisions. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes. And that leads to the new world. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy, showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Obed, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. So all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story woven into God's grand story of redemption to the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. All right. Um, so if Esther is. I guess the bachelor, Ruth, is bachelorette. Uh, both you know, tr trying to search for the perfect match, uh, getting, getting all dressed up, or all the beauty treatments. But whose story is, who, who's the protagonist of Ruth? Well, it opens and closes with Naomi. It's, it's what happens to her, you know, the tragedy, and then the, you know, that's the child that's even described as Naomi's son. It's Ruth. Ruth gets the title. Ruth gets engages our interest. Our interest. Boaz is the hero of the story, at least in the part where he appears, uh, the kinsman redeemer. And I think it's probably very little question that Boaz is the Christ, kind of a Christ figure in this story. It's the most narrative book in the Bible. Uh, it's mostly comprised of dialogue. I think 55 of the 85 verses are dialogue. It's got this 70 word, one word bookend, uh, beginning and ending that tells uh, when it starts and then the what happens after. So we know that it was written 
at least after the time of David, some believe that this book might have been written at the end of David's reign to kind of establish Solomon as part of this lineage because the genealogy is really important in the story. Others think it may have been written a little later, uh, maybe even during the exile as an encouragement. The most memorable lines in this, how many, any of you have those read at your wedding, whether thou goest, I will go. Uh, nobody mentions at the wedding that those words were spoken to a mother-in-law. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true words never spoken. Um, they're in, in the movement, and they kind of mention, it moves from, you know, it starts in Bethlehem, which the city of bread. And the you know, the they have to leave to find a place, and then they go back when the famine is over. The book ends starts with famine, ends with plenty, as they mentioned. It starts with death and ends with birth. If you study the hero's journey, you can follow all those little uh, Joseph Campbell steps through this story, the one who leaves and then comes back and uh, gains something. In our text... In the Old Testament, the book is usually placed right after Judges chronologically. Um, I understand that in some in the Jewish text, it's often placed right after the book of Psalm. And even the same words that are used to describe the, the Psalm, the Proverbs, excuse me, the Proverbs 31, woman of noble character, is the term that's used to describe Ruth. And Boaz is a man of noble character. So that's uh, probably a lovely place to uh, put, put this as well. Um, what do the books have in common? When we look at thing, push the right button again. Both books deal with God's people having to live outside of Israel. Some go by choice, some were taken in exile, but you know the, the, after the captivity, we had people that remained behind in Persia. Uh, there's, are they still God's people? Both women are the main characters. They're both outsiders. They're both very vulnerable in both of the stories. And both of them had a choice to play a role in God's will. You know, that Ruth also, an outsider from God's people, was there for such a time. And boy, did she have a major role in the story. Did you notice in both videos, and then it just so happened, the narrator says, what appears as coincidence is, I think, undoubtedly the work of God, even though in both cases we're never told, and then God made it happen. It's obvious that God's hand is in every single thing that happens in both stories. In both, our expectations are turned upside down. There are some differences. Esther is a story of royalty, and Ruth is a story of ordinary people, you know, common people, even poor people. But both show Israel's history, and both show the deliverance of God's people. Um, so where's God in the story? He's always in the background. Yeah. He's, he's never a major player mm -hmm. in, the, in the narrative, but he's a major player in the yeah. story, yeah. I think. And, and I wonder if the, if the Hebrew people hearing this, the Israelites hearing this story, are they going, where was God? Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that God is in both stories. Uh, there are the themes, neither one ends with, and the moral of the story is, the themes are implicit, 
but they're not hidden. I think one of the things that, when I teach literature, there's this idea that the meaning is hidden in the story. If you're trying to tell a story for a purpose, it would be kind of silly to hide the meaning, wouldn't it? Uh, but it's implied. One is that obedience to God's law produces blessing. You know, one of the things about Ruth, it was set during the time of the judges, which if you read, were a really dark time. Israel, the Israelites did not exactly uh, live up to what they should have. I mean, some of the worst things that happened. And yet Bethlehem was still a place where there were faithful people. Uh, the lover of law, how e if, you're, if you're disobeying other commands of the law, how easy would it be just to kind of disobey this law about who's going to take care of the widows? And yet you've got, the, you've got Boaz and, and even the other kinsman redeemer who uh, gets, gets a chance and, and steps out of the way and says, no, you, you can have her. Uh, the, the, the law of gleaning, I think it was, it's really a beautiful plan to take care of the, of the needy. That you don't pick everything, you leave some behind. And yet they didn't say, and didn't have your servants to bundle it up and give it to them. The people who were hungry and needy were able to, you know, save their dignity. They worked for it. You know, that, but you had noble people like Boaz who were looking after people like, like Esther. It wasn't a perfect place. It makes you kind of warm. Be careful where you go. Uh, even when, she, when, when Ruth was allowed to continue to glean, Boaz told look after her, make sure she's okay. Uh, so you, you see people stepping up and doing, uh, living, living like godly people. I think Boaz is such a, such a lovely character. Yeah, yeah, one thing is, I always say that, is both these involve marriages, which were not good marriages mm -hmm. according to the Torah. Mm -hmm. You know, here you have a, good, a nice Jewish girl marrying this Persian, even though he's a king, he's a Persian. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, Maon, Marrying Ruth, yeah. who's a Moabitess, and then later Boaz is going to marry her. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, again, mm -hmm. the imperfections of all the situations, the characters, mm -hmm. I, I yeah. think and, are great. And the, and the way that God takes that, especially that He takes a foreigner, and not only does He bless Ruth, but notice you, know, the, you, you see the end of the story. We're blessed because of Ruth. Yeah. That lineage of Christ, uh, I think, is one of the lovely parts of the story. Yeah, I was like, the other thing I love about this book is when the kinsman redeemer comes, they didn't talk about it. here if there's a piece of land. It says, oh, here's this piece of land, it's yours. And you can see this guy getting excited. He says, oh, by the way, if you get the land, you have to take this mow about it. Yeah. And her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law. Mother <laughs> well, oh, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Both these books to me are some of the yeah. funniest yeah. books in the Bible. Oh, yeah. The, and the other guy may had maybe he had read the story of Samuel and he understood how things didn't work out so well with Elkanah yeah. and the uh, if, you know, if, if he had a wife already another one and another mother-in-law might have been more than uh, he was ready for yeah who's included the family of God uh, in Esther just that little line there were people who were not Jews who chose to become Jews and we're not told that God said, no, never mind, you don't have the right blood. Uh, the fact that Ruth is brought into this family. And I'm, we, t we know, we talked a little bit about who comes after her. That we have Ruth, you know, the, Obed, Jesse, David, and on to the line of Christ. Who came right before? I said, was it Oaz's grandmother? Remember who that was? Rahab. Rahab. Yeah. And Tamar is, you've got, you've got some... Uh, 
some women mentioned who wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't expect them to be the prime candidates in The Bachelor, would you? And yet they not only become part of the story, they become part of the lineage of Christ. And I think when we, the, think about the original people who read this, they knew, the, they knew the lineage through David. When we read it, you know, do you know the term dramatic irony? When the reader or the audience knows something the characters don't. It's why when you watch a scary movie, you're going, don't turn your back, he's behind the door. We know, when we read this story, what do we know that the original audience didn't know? We know that not only is God the hero of this story, Jesus is all in it. Jesus is all over this story. You've got that picture of a redemption with Boaz that's, that's foreshadowing something that's so much, uh, so much bigger. Uh, yes? And thinking about Esther, um, you can see that she made a community of the maidens. Yeah. Everybody helped her mm -hmm. go forward, even though they, she, they weren't Jewish. Yeah. But and wherever she was, yeah. she made friends. And part, and they would say, "What do you want?" Really, nothing. She she was never asking for things for herself. Did you, in in the story too? If you read the the close details, but yeah, those uh, you know, the the maids, the men, yeah, the eunuchs that are there, yeah, who didn't have a dog in the fight. Her character really, I think, was showed through. Uh, as far as providence, what are some of the coincidences that happen in the book of Esther? Mordecai just happened to hear the fellow talking about killing him. Right place, right time. He's able to. And then, do you think it was a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep that one particular night? How many of you? What do you ask somebody to read to you to put you to sleep? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go get the law, go get the history. And so the fact that, that he couldn't sleep in that particular night, what they read was something that prompted him to look back and find Mordecai and see, you know, did, what did I do for him? And that, of, you know, of, of the, and that lovely perfect timing of Haman coming in and thinking, oh, he's talking about me. Uh, yeah. I, lo I love the part too in the second banquet where you know, where Haman, the, the king leaves and Haman just falls all over her and then the king, you're going to rape my wife. Uh, everything, you know, timing is really not good for Haman. Uh, what are the coincidences that happen in the book of Ruth? Huh? Yeah. And, and, and there were other fields. You know, the, the fact that... And, no, Naomi doesn't tell her where to go. You know, she tells her to go. You know, why don't you go try the glen? But she doesn't say, I know this particular guy, this could be really good for us. It works out well. But that timing and the, and the fact that he is a man of noble character. He, he, if he had not had integrity, how might he have behaved when he sees, oh, here go a woman. I'm not sure that we've still got all of the lessons here because one of the most confusing scriptures is, is 1 Kings 14 uh, 8 where the prophet told, uh, said that uh, you've not followed after my servant David who walked after me with all his heart to do only that which is right in my eyes. There's, there are things going on here that's beyond what was given to the people. 
can rip. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. You know, God made that statement, mm-hmm. but yet we know what David did. Right. So there's something else going on mm-hmm. here. And our relationship to God, God's relationship yeah. to us. And, and I think it's the, the pursuit that, you know, that David, I think David had a desire. And I think a lot of the characters that, you know, the, the, these are real people who, who, like us, are flawed. Yeah. And what do, you, what do you hope is said about, is, is that, what is it, the resume virtues versus uh, eulogy virtues? What do you hope people say at the end of your life? Yeah. When David died, does anybody say, but do you remember that thing about Bathsheba? Yeah, or, or, well, you know, uh, Esther, she did marry, you know, that, that guy wasn't a Jew that she, uh, you know, that king that she married. So I think, to, I think we see God's mercy. And we see that God, God sees us, uh, and God sees the heart, I think it's part of the story. Anything else that, I think we're getting, it's about time to go. Yeah. It, our baby alarms here going off. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing's if if you if you know these books well, read them again. One of the, you'll you'll find every time I read it, I find something that I didn't know was there, and something that uh, I can apply to myself. And I hope mainly, I hope that I can find a way to be part of His will and part of His plan. And uh, because it's yeah. 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 Same. The same God. Yeah. Mm Mhm. Yeah. He's. He is still at work. All right. You want to leave us in a prayer Uh, before we leave? Well, I'm gonna say. Well, next week's our final week in this class. (gasps) And And then the exam. Yeah. That's the exam. Terry and I are each gonna, you know. Take I think our favorite. I'm gonna take my no my favorite video from this. The ones I've watched. And I've watched a lot of these Bible project videos, and and do some applications, submit, and we'll finish up. Let's have a great prayer and we'll close. Thank you, Father, for the time we spent today. Thank you for the things we've learned. Help us to go out and put it to use. In the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.